0: Hello, this is Key Ideas, and I'm your host, Leela Viss. This podcast contemplates the rhythm of life as a piano teacher and music maker. Through illuminating interviews and transparent reflections, you'll feel validated, encouraged, and empowered. A huge thank you to Forte Lessons for sponsoring this episode. If you are still stuck teaching online lessons on Zoom, now's the time to make the change to Forte. Here's why. Forte Studio is totally free to use for all of your existing students, both for online and sick days. The audio was made for online music lessons and sounds so much better than Zoom. It's simple to use for you and for your students. It's very user-friendly. You can easily use your mobile phone as a second simultaneous camera with a QR code. Forte allows you to record your lessons and share them with your students. A friend and I just walked through Forte together after she had been limping along in Zoom. She was sold on Forte in a heartbeat. This is episode number 67, in which you are privileged to learn from Brenna Berman. Already an avid performer at the age of seven, Brenna's promising career as a pianist was almost shut down by the pain and injuries she sustained from playing the piano. In fact, one of her college professors suggested Brenna find another career path. In our conversation, you learn how Brenna overcame her injuries and why she is now a leading expert in the Taubman approach. Weaved through the interview, Brenna touches on topics like enhancing our intuition, transcending the traditions of playing from a score, the six main things that cause injuries in pianists, and the foundational technique tools we can implement
1: in our lessons, even with our beginning students. Before we jump in, here's more about Brenna. Brenna Berman is a certified master teacher of the Taubman Approach, executive director and founder of Effortless Artistry Music Nonprofit, and holds an associate faculty position with the Golansky Institute. She has 22 years of training as a performer and teacher of the Taubman Approach and mentors piano teachers pursuing Taubman Approach certification. She has studied with the most highly acclaimed experts in the field, Robert Durso, Edna Golansky, John Bloomfield, and Dorothy Taubman. She holds a Bachelor of Music and Piano Performance from Oberlin Conservatory and a Master of Arts in Piano Performance from Hunter College. An avid performer since the age of seven, Brenna Berman has performed extensively throughout the United States and Europe. She has won many international, national, and statewide awards and scholarships. As an Artist's International New York Debut Award winner, She gave her New York debut at Carnegie Hall's Weill Recital Hall in March 2008. Ms. Berman is known for helping pianists and other instrumentalists eliminate playing-related injuries, overcoming limitations, acquire the tools necessary for virtuosity and expression, and reach their artistic potential. Her students have won many awards, performed with orchestras internationally, and have been admitted to prestigious institutions such as Oberlin Conservatory. Ms. Berman is based in Colorado and has private studios in Louisville, Colorado, and offers online video lessons to students across the country and internationally. Now, here's Leila with Brenna.
0: Welcome, Brenna. I'm thrilled that you are here today. Thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you so much,
0: Layla. I'm happy to be here with you. I have to say that I feel a little spoiled that I get you all to myself. (laughs) Usually you are lecturing and teaching to crowds and they are hanging on every word that you say. And I think it's because uh, of your clever and insightful approach to your presentations and also because you are an expert in the Tubman approach. So let's begin there with you explaining what the Tubman, I I should know how to pronounce that. How do I pronounce that? (laughs) Taubman Taubman approach is, and then how you became an expert in this approach.
2: Okay. Um, So I'm going to take you kind of, back to the beginning of my piano hood to get to the to the answer there um, I played piano quite a bit growing up and I mean from a very young age I don't remember not playing the piano and I was pretty serious and, and performing a lot and practicing a lot and competing a lot so pretty quickly I actually ran into trouble um, around age 13 or so I was getting a lot of tension in my arms and and having some problems there. My teacher really didn't know what to do about it. Uh, My mother, however, had attended um, in the 80s, the Taubman Institute. So she was aware of the Taubman approach. We moved to Colorado, and at that time, John Bloomfield, who is one of the founders of the Galancy Institute, was traveling to Colorado occasionally. So I had a few lessons with him, and they were great. So I was intrigued, and I knew that I wanted to to study this approach. So I looked for a teacher when I was going to college, and I found one at Oberlin Conservatory who had studied with Dorothy Taubman. So I decided to attend Oberlin and study with him. Uh, while I was at Oberlin, though, uh, we were we were doing technique work, but I ended up horrendously injured, actually, Uh, you know, in conservatory life, everybody practices at least four hours a day is our thing. Um, And so my right hand uh, suffered from tendonitis, I had carpal tunnel syndrome, I even did some damage to my ulnar nerve. And I was completely out of commission with that hand for quite some time, so I had to stop playing. But I also couldn't shake anybody's hand, or you know, write with a pencil, or open a door. I remember even even putting my hand through my hair, running my fingers through my hair, uh, was incredibly painful. Uh, so yeah, I was in bad shape, and uh, I compensated a lot with my left hand, and my left hand actually got hurt during that compens- you know, compensation period and I went back to playing eventually after a long rest but it was a situation where I would practice and then I would go home and ice my arms and take a rest and go back and practice the next day and go home and ice my arms and you know so it was really a, a pretty bad situation. I don't really know how I ended up graduating and doing my senior recital through all of that and then i went off to graduate school and in graduate school um my hands continued to go downhill Uh, they actually started to feel slow or or like my fingers were in molasses. It was a very strange sensation. I don't know what was going on, but it was very scary. And so I I didn't really know what to do. And I flew back to see my Oberlin teacher over the winter break of my first year of graduate school uh, and wanted to ask him for help. So I had a lesson or two with him. And in the last lesson I had with him, he told me, why don't you find something else to do with your life? Mm. (laughs) Wow. So, you know, that was obviously heartbreaking. Um, I left in tears and it was you know, one of the worst things anybody had ever mm-hmm. said to me. Uh, piano playing was my passion. But I now look at it as as a blessing because it was a big wake-up call for me because I realized I could either do that and just give up on piano altogether and find something else to do with my life or, you know, what was the other option? So, I, I only knew of Taubman as, as a potential to help me even though I thought that it hadn't helped me so far. So I looked to the absolute top experts in the field, and I figured, you know, if they can't help me, I'm a lost cause, you know. So uh, at the time, that was Edna Golansky uh, and Robert Durso, and they're still top experts in the field. They were co-founders also of the Galansky Institute, which is currently the preeminent center of the Taubman approach. So I flew out to Philadelphia and New York, and I took a few lessons with Edna, and I took a few lessons with Bob Durso. And within minutes really i realized that i had never received the talman training and you know within a few minutes they were able to get my hand on the keys and get a key to go down i was putting a key down and it felt like there was no piano there it was just so effortless to put the to put the key down So, uh, you know, luckily, I was I was young at the time. I think I was 21 or 22. I was able to just drop out of my program and move. So I moved to Philadelphia to study with Bob Durso. And uh, I studied with Edna also on occasion. And I even had a chance to go see uh, Dorothy Taubman while she was still alive. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of neat. Um, and I began my training, and it was a whole other world, uh, so I, I learned later that my Oberlin teacher had had a few lessons with Talman, but he was not equipped to teach it. And so I had thought that it was my fault, and he certainly helped me feel that it was my fault, but it was really just that I had never received the training. Mm. So, um, you know, very quickly I began recovering from my injuries, and my playing got better, and. Uh, what was so cool about it though, is that the, the injury recovery was really just the first step in, in the process. Uh, it opened up so many doors in terms of my ability to solve problems in my passage work, to play faster, to play harder music. I had more control over tone. Uh, I had access to more artistry than I had before. I could do things that I had wanted to do before, but I didn't know how. And, um, and then I immediately wanted to uh, apply it to my teaching. So I did everything. I was very ambitious at the time. I went to every teacher training workshop that they had. I went to every symposium that I could go to uh, in the summer. And I brought my students to Bob and I brought my students to Edna all the time, You know, just trying to learn as much as I possibly could. And. So rather quickly, I was certified with the Galansky Institute, and um, I'm now certified as a master teacher of the Taubman approach with the Galansky Institute, and I've been on their associate faculty for, for some time, and then I moved back to Colorado in, I think it was '09. so that's my story. <laughs> wow.
0: So you even dabbled in it, and it still didn't stick. It didn't heal. Your hands. And then what's interesting is how fast the turnaround was. You would think that it would take months and months, but how long did it take you to start feeling better?
2: It, you know, feeling better at the piano, happened almost immediately so i started to feel better at the piano but i did have an actual injury and there were you know inflammation in my arms so it was interesting because it took a while for the inflammation to go down to the point that i could you know say hold a bag of groceries with my right hand without pain so something like that was still hard for Mm -hmm. a few months or maybe yeah, maybe six months or so where other more arduous activities in my life would still sort of bother the healing um, but i felt good at the piano almost immediately and then after you know six months or so uh, my body was able to heal from the original injury and then i could do the everyday life things that are actually harder than piano playing without pain
0: it brings to mind a book called the body keeps the score and it sounds like those repetitive motions, which we will talk about, what causes injuries, are somewhat invisible. And do you think emotionally there was some baggage going on as well that made Let's your see. injuries even I worse? I
2: lost you in the. Um, oh, I had an internet cut out. Okay. For a second. Do you mind repeating that last sure. question?
0: It, it's. I don't know if you've heard of the book "The Body Keeps the Score." But that one. it's a yeah. powerful book about, you know, wh- basically emotions and how they affect us, but also small little motions, repetitive motions can really aggravate a huge part of your body. So it's fascinating. We're going to talk about that in just a minute about what causes injuries, but before we do, what always fascinates about every presentation that you give like I jump on board right away like oh good Brenna's gonna be talking listen. <laughs> and your latest one at the Colorado State Conference intrigued me because of the title called enhancing intuition and So can you give us examples first of all on how we can enhance our t- intuition
2: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is this is a really fun topic for me, so I was I was excited that you wanted to talk about it today. Um, I also wanted to give you a little bit of background into how I got you know into thinking about it um, and intuition. <clears throat> so when I started teaching the Taubman approach before before I was really experienced, I had it in my mind that if I had a student who had never played the piano before. They would come as some kind of blank slate with no bad habits. And I would just easily put in all the good habits and (laughs) everything would be wonderful. And- (laughs) Nope. Nope, (laughs) it turns out it doesn't work that way. So that was interesting to see that even if a person hadn't been told to do something incorrectly or hadn't been trained to do something that was injurious, there were still certain cravings everybody did that I had to deal with no matter where they came from they had these these odd intuitions and and it's odd that we even have some kind of intuition that has to do with piano playing and where the heck did that come from you know Um, And some of them are very good, you know, lots of our intuitions in life and at the piano are very good. But sometimes the intuition um, makes mistakes. And so my sort of secondary um, inspiration there was that I read a book by Daniel Kahneman. He's a very famous psychologist who, who won a Nobel Prize called Thinking Fast and Slow. And in the book, he goes into these two types of thinking, system one and system two. And system one, is that sort of gut intuition level thinking, which again is correct a lot of the time, most of the time, but not all of the time. So he goes into these situations where our, our instincts can be fooled a little bit and where we can go in and double check what's going on and actually correct the error and improve our intuition. So that was kind of my inspiration. Uh, yeah, so I'd love to talk about some of these little things that I've I've noticed. So the first one is there is a an initial desire for people to line their hands and fingers up with the keys, so sort of parallel to the keys so that their forearm is drawing up more of a parallel line with the keys. Uh, again, not having been told to do that, that just seems to be a thing that we do. Well, we must like lines, you know, in order. <laughs> uh, and sometimes that works out fine for the passage. But if our passage, for instance, is a scale where we have to cross our thumb under, or an arpeggio where we have to cross our thumb under, it actually is better if we create an angle not in our body, to be clear here, our body should be aligned. Our finger, hand, and forearm should be aligned with itself. But if we think of that as creating a line, we should be at an angle with the keyboard. Uh, if I'm doing a right hand scale, it would be an angle where my elbow is more towards the upper register. Uh, so it's a diagonal like that, and my hand is more towards the middle register. So uh, you can certainly try this later. I hope everybody does if they put. Put their hand parallel to the keys, or if they actually move that to that angle, you'll see that it moves your thumb towards where it would be going for the crossing. So that type of angle actually enables crossings to be easier and more fluent. Um, by contrast, if we have a totally different type of context in the left hand, let's say the left hand is doing a leaping bass. The instinct will be that the, the student will bring their entire finger, hand, and forearm down to their pinky on the base note and line up that way, and then bring it all the way back for the core that's more in the in the middle register. So this is a pretty inefficient way to move up and down distances. So it, it works a lot better if the elbow actually stays a little closer to the body and that the hand goes towards the lower register. So we're talking about an angle now that would be the opposite type as the crossing angle. So instead of the elbow sort of away from the body and the hand towards the inside, we switch that. Um, and then to, to move in a leaping base situation, we use a motion more like a windshield wiper, mm. sort of having an axis at the elbow. And that motion is, is much, much less work than moving the entire arm up and down the register. So that was the first one that I mentioned, shall I go on to the next one? Yes. Or
0: Well, I have a question for you. So it's a lot of angles. You're right. We assume that, okay, I just sit straight and then that's how I play. But you're talking about moving the body, bringing the body and the arm behind the fingers much more and having a lot more movement from one bun to the other, so to speak.
2: (laughs) Sometimes it involves more movement from one bun to the other, yes. (laughs) That's true. Sometimes it involves less movement of the torso. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if I'm doing that leaping bass, Situation, the elbow is moving less, so the body would move less actually. Okay. If you move the elbow down to the lower register, I actually have to move my body more. So, you know, sometimes the body moves more with what we do, sometimes it moves less. Uh, the body should always be sort of responding to the needs of the finger, hand, and forearm. But these angles of the finger, hand, and forearm, yes, we, we really wanna consider them, that they're a high-level consideration for us, and it's very, very context-dependent. So system one, let's go back to, and maybe
0: you can <laughs> even give us an example. here. I've got some things churning in my head. First of all, when new students come, it feels, because things are hard, they press hard on the keys because they're working hard. So is right. that a system one thing in action there?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a slew of these things, right? Uh, Definitely pressing hard, pushing hard, forcing down, uh, which is something we can talk about when we're talking about injury. Mm -hmm. It's not good for the body, but everybody does that. (laughs) Everybody does that. You, You have to teach that skill of, okay, it's actually not necessary to press on the bottom and actually pressing on the bottom makes no difference in the sound. At all, right? So the only thing that makes the difference in the sound is how we pass through this escapement in the key, you know. So how we vary the levels of speed that the key goes down. So, you know, we show the body how to do that. And over time you start to hear the result. Oh, I can get a loud sound if I don't press on the bottom. And we develop a new intuition about making a loud sound. But you're absolutely right. That instinct of pressing hard hard and working hard, that is a, a pretty common one. Um, as well as when people want to play softly, mm-hmm. they will hover, you know, they're af- afraid to go down into the key. And that usually makes things very unpredictable. Uh, because no matter if it's soft or loud, we have to make it through the escapement in the key to make a sound and, and get to the bottom. Now, I may be putting you on the spot. But I what I enjoyed
0: about your presentation is you gave us some concrete examples of system one versus system two. Do you have one that you could share with us? I think that would help people understand what you mean by
2: that. Yeah. Let me think about, let's see, let's think about what would translate into a podcast because a lot of them are visual. Um, okay. I, I, I know one that we could... Well, let's see. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Isn't that one about banking or something? It's
2: Yeah. Yeah. There is one about, there's a couple, there's one about priming. There's one that's a math problem. That's kind oh, of fun. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. You want to try that one? Yeah, I'll do that okay. one. Okay. So this is called the bat and ball problem. And it is a, it's a math question. And the idea here is that uh, I want you or the listener to think about what answer immediately comes to mind. The question is this a bat and a ball cost a dollar ten. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost?
0: <laughs> I know. And I, I had to even look at this I'm like, well, yes, of course. Okay, $1.10 and the ball is 10 cents. Is yes.
2: Well it's the question is how much does the ball cost? And most people will immediately have the answer 10 cents. 10 cents, yes. Right. Okay. Yes. That pops into the mind as the answer. But if we do the math, if the ball was 10 cents and the bat costs a dollar more than the ball, then the bat will cost a dollar and 10 cents, right? So the total would actually be a dollar 20. When you gave that to
0: us in the conference, I kept like, "No, what?" Like, not get over it. And that system one is really stubborn. That's what I know. Very
2: stubborn. It's very true. It's very stubborn. And even now, even after I've given this talk three times, I have to think very hard. What is the answer? (laughs) (laughs) And the answer, I believe, is five cents. Right? Five cents. Because if it was five cents, the bat would be a dollar and five cents and together they would be a dollar ten but almost everybody thinks ten cents it's 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 very odd but it's a gut you know, reaction. Um, There are exceptions, you know, mathematicians may be familiar enough that they can anticipate the answer. Um, But most of us think 10 cents. And unless we sit down and actually work out the math problem, we won't realize that we were wrong.
0: So when you bring that back to the piano, and you're talking about, uh, basically, the fingers are in charge. (laughs) And that is so not intuitive to me, you know, no, my body's in charge, my head's in charge. But really, we are catering to our fingers and what they are capable of doing
2: yes yeah actually in the book the the the, by daniel kahneman he talks about how very 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 much system one is in charge Uh, (laughs) you know we're running on autopilot you know most of the day most all the day in every activity we run on an autopilot and again usually autopilot works pretty well Uh, but at piano playing you know when it doesn't uh, we have to we have to step in and, and correct it. Um, so is yeah. that what
0: happened in your recovery? You uncovered System Two.
2: Yes, in in order to retrain someone, we do have to call on system two in a major way, <laughs> in a very major way. And you know, one of the things you saw in the talk is I also showed exercises where we have to use that system two, or you can just think of it as really hard thinking or thinking with uh, working memory, which is something in our prefrontal cortex. So. Yeah, we have to think very, very hard to retrain technique because we are simultaneously suppressing the instinct, suppressing our, you know, what our habit has been. And then we're trying to create a new habit in its place. And so that takes all our capacity of concentration to do at first. Um, At first, it really takes that amazing amount of concentration. Uh, People can only work on it for small amounts of time at first until the change has been made. But the very, very, very cool thing there is that when you have succeeded at making that change, the new skill goes into system one, the new skill goes into the automatic. So that one becomes the effortless one.
0: Well maybe this is a nice lead in into what causes injuries and I grabbed this from your website because I thought this might be helpful to listeners. It says that the Taubman approach is groundbreaking analysis of the mostly invisible motions that function underneath a virtuoso technique. The resulting knowledge makes it possible to help pianists overcome technical limitations as well as cure playing-related injuries. It is also the way that tone production and other components of expressive playing can be understood and taught. So now, of course, we all want effortless and brilliant technique and yet it's alarming to me that many injuries result from invisible motions. So can you please tell us what can cause these injuries in the first place?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are six basic things that we have nailed down that cause injury. So I'll list them and then we can kind of go through each one so that we make sure we understand what they are. Um, so let me get out my list for us. The first uh, the first one is called forcing. Second one is isolating. Third is collapsing. The fourth is overcurling. The fifth is twisting and the sixth is stretching. So let me go through and define those. Okay. Uh, Forcing, actually, is what you were just talking about a moment ago. So when we're pushing hard on the bottom of the key, we're pushing hard with our forearm, we're pushing hard with our fingers into the bottom of the key. Uh, When people do that kind of forcing into the bottom of the key, they often end up with uh, injuries like tennis elbow. Um, And pushing on the bottom of the keys can be mostly invisible. what we do to solve forcing is we teach people how to use their forearm hand and fingers in one unit uh, working together and we use that unit like a lever that operates from the elbow so uh, this is why we often show things very large by the way these are invisible ultimately but it turns out it's hard to teach invisible things so, <laughs> so we have to uh, exaggerate certain things for people so that they can really feel them and really understand them so that when they get sized down to the invisible they can still sense the difference between whether whether they are there or not um so some things that we need to understand to avoid forcing is how the piano works, you know, how we work. These are the things that Tauman, you know, really looked into deeply. And one of the facts about the piano is that the keys themselves only weigh about 50 grams. So it only takes 50 grams to put the key down, which is about a 10th of a pound. And uh, that is extremely light, right? It's extremely light. It's however, can be heavier than the fingers themselves so the fingers if they're if they have to do the task of putting the key down they have to push very very hard but if we unify the finger hand and forearm uh, even a small child's forearm of a pound or two is plenty to put the key down so we have to line up them up in an aligned way. They have to learn how to be unified. They have to sit at a height uh, where the lever actually can function, which means that their elbow is level with the white keys. They need to be sitting close enough to the piano that they can use the forearm weight rather than pressure. So lucky for us, gravity pulls down. Also lucky for us, our keys are underneath our arm. So, you know, I always make this joke. If we had to play the keyboard, you know, towards the ceiling, we'd be in trouble. But we can just allow the gravity to bring down our arm and the key goes down in such a way that feels, you know, feels like nothing. So that's how we can eliminate forcing. Mm-hmm. So the second one was isolating. So when we talk about isolating, it's hard to understand the details here, but what we're talking about is when a finger is using um, only itself to put the key down, rather than calling on that hand and forearm to go with it. Uh, This is, is incredibly important to avoid. Isolating is the cause for the bulk of the injuries, tendonitis and carpal tunnel syndrome. And uh, what we need to understand here is that when we use our finger strength or our finger muscles, this is what leads to those repetitive stress injuries. The finger muscles are not made to be built up in the same way that you can go to the gym and do some bicep curls and build your bicep so it turns out that when we try to put that kind of pressure on the fingers rather than getting stronger we just end up with problems and you know there's been studies there's one that's over 100 years old that we like to cite by otto ortman where he studied pianists who tried to strengthen their fingers and pianists who didn't and when he tested them twice over the period of a year, he found that after a year, the ones that had been trying to strengthen their fingers were actually weaker and a lot of them were injured. So we wanna get away from that idea that we can strengthen the fingers. There's no need to strengthen the fingers. All we have to do is hook them up to the hand and the forearm. Schumann comes to mind. Yes. (laughs) Yes, Yes, if only Schumann had had the Taubman technique, he would not have put his poor fourth finger in that contraption and hurt himself. Mm -hmm. Collapsing is the next one. This is a very common issue as well, because people will sometimes relate to this as relaxing. And many teachers will use the word relax. and. The word relax, it's, it's easy to understand why it has entered the pedagogy. Mm-hmm. If somebody is playing very, very well, they might describe that playing as feeling relaxed. Mm-hmm. But most students, if they are told to relax, they will interpret that comment very literally and they will let go of joints. So they'll let go of a wrist or they'll let go of a knuckle uh, and this causes you know our fingers to isolate. And it also often causes neck pain and back pain, strangely enough. Mm-hmm. If people are, are, we call it breaking their wrist, if they're collapsing their wrist, essentially their fingers are, are sort of falling off the piano. So their fingers have to clutch the keys. Mm-hmm. And often we have compensatory pain in our neck and our back. And, and we believe that that's probably because our body senses the falling off and is trying to hold us mm-hmm. onto the piano. Well, we're so not sitting back in a lazy boy. That's
0: what I think of the word relax. And
2: right. Not relaxing. sitting in a lazy boy. Yeah, exactly. Like get out the Netflix yeah. and the beanbag, <laughs> right? <Yeah>. That's relax. <laughs> right. Yeah. Bob Durso, who trained me, always talked about, you know, if somebody pulls a fire alarm, you do not want to be in that beanbag chair yeah. watching Netflix. You want to be ready to go, you know? So, you know, we are doing things at the piano. We need to be ready to go. Uh, and so yeah.
0: what is a better word? Is there a better word than relaxing when we're talking to our students?
2: Yes. Yeah. I I find the, the linguistic challenge here is interesting because most people think in sort of binary terms. So they would think, oh, I have a choice to either be tense or relax, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that tense is bad, so relax must be the answer. But the actual answer is in the middle mm-hmm. of those two, right? And there are not a lot of great words for that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we'll use the word neutral um but i think the the best thing is to come up with analogies where people understand it and so our standby analogy is is walking or standing and understanding that when we walk or we stand we are balanced on top of certain joints such as our knees and our knees when we take a step we don't relax our knees if we were to collapse our knees we would fall to the ground at the same time we don't tighten our knees, right? That would be a very ridiculous way to walk. So there is that other state, which we all know very, very well, and there are very few words for it, you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I like the word neutral or functional, but there aren't that many. So I'm always looking for some new words to to put in there. We like the word ease. We like the word effortless, you know? So we try to use those, but we do try to stay away from the word relax because it usually creates collapse.
0: Mm -hmm. Hey, we'll get right back to the conversation, but I want to make you aware of sheet music that allows students to freely explore the keyboard. Too often, beginner music gets hung up around middle C, which can feel awkward and lead to poor technique. I can always count on Wendy Stevens of ComposeCreate.com for music that encourages students to express themselves with the entire range of the piano. That's why Wendy's trademark, Music Kids Love, is spot on. I know that if you try just one piece, you'll see why my students choose her music again and again. So I'm excited that Wendy is offering to give any key ideas listener a popular elementary piece called The Bold Escape for free. Just put the piece in your cart enter the coupon code Key Ideas. that's K-E-Y-I-D-E-A-S, all one word. Then hit checkout and it's yours to use over and over again. I think you and your students will love it. Look for a link to get your copy of The Bold Escape in the show notes. Now, back to my conversation with Brenna.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, The next injury causer is curling or over curling of the fingers. And what we're talking about here is when people pull their fingers back from the nail joint. So we're not talking about the natural curve that a finger has. We are talking about a particular type of curling that happens when we pull the fingers back from the from the knuckle closest to the nail and you and, see that all the time in kids when We say okay curve your fingers and then they make these claws right and they make it right, right. Mm-hmm. exactly exactly and as you know in my talks I always have people do that and we do a little patty cake game with a regular mm-hmm. hand and then I have them curl their fingers and do the patty cake and it's immediately apparent that the entire arm is more tight mm-hmm. Um, curling is responsible for a lot of the carpal tunnel that we see typers get it as well. So, uh, we do not want to do that at all. We have solutions for that, where we just use movement to bring our key, our, our fingers to the place that we want on the key. So if we want to play a long finger, like the third finger, outside of the black key area, instead of curling, we actually just move our finger, hand, and forearm away from the black key area, which we call moving out. So moving in and out, once we teach this to people, they always say, oh my gosh, that's so obvious now, you know, after the fact, it's obvious, Uh, but it's a very easy movement. It's like pushing in a drawer or pulling out a drawer and you just, you move your fingers to the place you want to go to and you still have the speed and the freedom in the fingers. I'm not an expert at all, but I will do that in and out motion
0: especially when someone's working on octaves or something like that and then they're like oh yeah wow you know (laughs) and and it's not that big of a motion but it really helps
2: right yeah it's a nice motion to be able to apply even if you don't know all of these taubman tools it's something you can apply right away and help somebody Our last two were twisting and stretching. So the twisting, these are all Taubman, you know, names. She called it twisting. The medical profession calls it ulnar deviation. And it's when we move our hands laterally back and forth from the wrist. This too creates our injuries. Uh, It also sometimes seems to be correlated with ganglia on top of the wrist. It happens a lot when people are reaching for black keys with their thumb or their pinky again the solution often is about angles or in and out Mm -hmm. but twisting is is very very common so we want to make sure we eliminate that and then the last one uh called stretching and this is not the kind of stretching that you know you get up in the morning and you Put your hands above your head. That's good stretching. Uh Uh That feels awesome. So what we're talking about here is something very particular where we use the abductor muscles of the fingers. So those are the spreading muscles of the fingers. And one thing that's really interesting about when we do that is that when you try to separate your own fingers, you'll find that you can't help but the fingers go up also. So we can't separate them while they're also down. So these abductor muscles are somehow entwined with the lifting muscles, which are called the extensors. So if we do that, if we do the separation in our fingers and our fingers are being brought up, and then we try to play a piano key, to play a piano key, we need the fingers to go down. So we need to use what's called the flexors. So if we're trying to use the flexors while the extensors are firing, we have muscles pulling in opposite direction. And uh, Taubman called this a dual muscular pull. Medical profession calls it co-contraction. I love the fun, you know, the technical words. Uh, We know it as tension, right? When these, these muscles are pulling against each other, it feels tight. And the solution here I think is so cool Um, We call it passive opening. So obviously we need our hand to get open, you know, if we're going to play an octave or something that is wide, somehow we need to get it open, but we can't use those muscles to get it open. So what we find is that if we use something else to open us, you know, like if you put your hand into your lap, you'll find that probably there's separation in between your fingers, but you are not doing that separation. Your leg is doing that separation to your fingers. So we can actually use the piano keyboard itself. We learn how to use it to open us. So we're basically able to, to throw our hand in a way into the keyboard in very tiny, invisible motions, but we use that piano to actually open us. Therefore, we don't have any dual muscular pull and we're able to play the octave or the wide thing without any tension. You were so kind to invite me to your studio and give me a lesson. And I
0: just remember when you showed me that like, let the key, what bring, keep your thumb there. It wasn't my thumb doing anything, but the key. It was leaning against the key, correct? Would you? Yeah, write? right. Yeah, right.
2: yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's it's very much more efficient, but it's it's funny because it also feels very much more lazy. <laughs> so it's a good kind of lazy. <laughs> like, just, why do I want to do that if I can let the piano do that right. too? <laughs> but it's yeah. that system one versus system
0: two, and we okay. just have to let go of all of those. Hmm. Exactly. Exactly.
2: Right. System one assumes that we have to open ourselves and form the octave and. stick it on the keyboard right Mm. well one of my other favorite
0: topics that you address in your presentations are the thou shalt so can we talk about those just a little bit
2: sure yeah so, yes, yeah. we have another. It's sort of a related talk to the enhancing intuition talk, um, but this one is not about automatic processes. This one is about how certain dogmas have been passed down through time, through tradition, in, in piano teaching. Yes. <laughs> and I want to just
0: make a little plug is where I heard it first was at your first annual Effortless Artistry Workshop in downtown Lafayette, which was fantastic. I'm so glad I was able to go to that. So thank you for offering that. And at the end of the show, we'll make sure that people hear more about that. But yes, it was a fantastic event. And in during that event, you gave this workshop on... What what did you call it? Transcending. Transcending condition, yes. Yes, yes. I love that title. Mm-hmm. So yes, go forth. Tell okay. us more
2: about Thou Shalt. Thank you for the plug. I yes. will do it again in, in next October. So definitely yes. come next year. Mm-hmm. All right. Yes, I love to to say these in the Thou Shalt. No, they're great. In the Thou Shalt manner. So maybe I can just list them off and then we can talk about a few if we'd like. sure. All right. So, the first one is thou shalt never repeat a finger on a repeated note. <laughs> oh, so, man. we we see these in the, you know, editions when people are operating by that dogma and it really comes up with some pretty, in my, in my estimation anyway, pretty insane fingering when someone is operating by that rule. Uh, and my solutions are not nearly so colorful, they're really just common sense sounding, which is use the fingering that's the best and the simplest. <laughs> uh, I love that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. And so that one I wanna talk about more in a moment. Okay. And the second one was thou shalt avoid one one and five five fingering. Mm-hmm. next one was thou shalt always use pattern fingering. This one um, is, is very, very common and also maybe partially one of those instincts. Uh, the fourth one is thou shalt play with the specific hand designated in the score. <laughs> yes, I that one too. <laughs> and finally, thou shalt follow the score as instructions for the fingertips. Mm-hmm. So I'd really love to talk about maybe the repeated note one and also the um, instructions for the fingertips because those are two of my favorites. Okay. Uh, the repeated note one, you know, one game I like to play with my students is why does that rule exist in the first place? Like, <laughs> you know, our, our previous piano players like sadists or (laughs) (laughs) what is going on here, right? Um, So I'm sure they all come from something very valid, right? So switching fingers on a repeated note makes sense if you have to go very fast. Um, because switching the fingers on a note is actually faster, so that could make sense. Uh, My other guess is that when you switch your fingers on a repeated note, it causes the hand shape to change, which can vary how you put the key down, which can be good, because if you put the key down in an identical way over and over again, it can sound very percussive. But if we're not going uh, very very quickly we don't need to worry about switching those fingers and if we are concerned about the sound being too vertical we can shape the hand and forearm on any finger you know we have control over that so we can create a beautiful shape in our hand that will create a beautiful tone on the key that doesn't uh, involve all the over-complication of switching the fingers every single time there's a repeated note. When I
0: switch a finger, I see myself doing some of that curling, some of the things that you that cause injuries. Is that one of the reasons why?
2: You... um not quite no? because okay. when we do have the fast passages where we have to switch the fingers we have to learn how to do that correctly you're right most people will do it that way they'll curl back the three and the two mm-hmm. so if if we're repeating let's say three two one mm-hmm. so you have to have the skill of in and out we have to have the skill mm-hmm. of rotation and we have to have the skill of staccato technique to uh to to avoid that curling, but it is possible to go three, two, one, three, two, one, and have the right movements and avoid the curling. It's one of the more complex skills. Mm -hmm. Uh, It takes some time to really understand those movements so that they work well. So what you're saying is we can use the same
0: finger on a key and get a good result and stay healthy.
2: Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Please do that. Yeah. You know, the simplest fingering is the best fingering, you know, make it simple for yourself Mm -hmm. so that we can focus on the musical part, you know, I don't want to be so busy doing gymnastics to get these fingerings in that I, I can't even listen to the sound I'm creating. You know, it, it ends up sort of having the opposite effect of the intention. If we're so worried about these dogmas, you know, we really want to have the most direct pathway to making the music that we want. So no unnecessary complicated things. Nice. The other one you know, is sort of related to that, that is, probably my very favorite thing that Taubman got into was replacing that rule about following the score as instructions for the fingertips with the idea that the score is and these are her words a blueprint for sound Mm. i I just love that phrase blueprint Mm. for sound and i really think she's completely a hundred percent right you know a composer writes down the sound they want to hear. They are not writing down, here are the exact instructions of how you're going to do that. Uh, I have worked with several composers, uh, actually, and I can confirm that they unanimously don't care how we (laughs) get it done, yeah, just get the job done, Uh, I don't think it's they're they're not worried about that. Uh, And we shouldn't worry about that as well. Again, if it should free us up to take a look at that score and say, Okay, wait a second, this is the sound I need to create, am I creating that sound? Um, And some of the most common things where we find that people have issues here are if they see long notes or holding notes while other Mm -hmm. notes are playing. Uh, They tend to just with a death grip hold on to that (laughs) note, (laughs) Uh meanwhile their hands are extremely tense and they're having trouble controlling the sound. Uh, legato marking in the score. So if there's slurs or legato. Now, certainly if it's easy to play legato, play legato. You know, Mm -hmm. finger legato is simpler if there isn't a reason to have to let go. But if the connection creates one of those six injury causers, uh, we don't do it. And Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you there's a way to make it sound legato without doing that. Uh, the other one is fingering in the score. You know, the fingering in the score. We have to make sure we sort of take that with a grain of salt, and remember that another human being wrote that fingering down. They are not you, and they are, do not have your hands. So you know, you can consider the fingering that is there, but it is not. You know, this is not something that you that people need to feel bad about changing you know people will feel guilty or i hear the word cheating you know i can't do that that's cheating Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like cheating (laughs) i didn't realize we were playing a game with rules of cheating you know but we've all thought it i've thought it as well you know but you can free your free yourself from that and then i find when you do you know and are Arms feel better, and we use balance of the arm over every note, it sounds much more legato. You know, we have tone control. So a long note will actually sound fuller and longer. And we can have tone control on the softer notes because our arm is balanced over there. So, you know, it's ironic, but usually, you know, I I find that the reverse is true. If somebody is following that score like an instruction manual, they They are actually doing less of the print for sound Mm. than they would like
0: good thing to think about.
2: I, this was one of my favorite
0: topics too, because I do this with my students all the time. I say, well, that's one fingering option. What else? And of course they they come up with some good and then not so good. And then they can determine themselves what feels good underneath their hand. And then I will also say too, you know, don't tell anybody, but you don't have to hold that note out, you know, <laughs> it's a secret, but that's what your pedal is for, you know, those kind of things. And it does, I, it really lightens the load. The other thing that I really appreciated about, and I know that's read, distributing as part of that as well. Yes. But you know, I had a student that had one long passage of 16th notes for the right hand and they're the left hand sat doing nothing. And the minute we engaged the left hand and divided it between the hands, it was so much faster. It was so much prettier. I mean, everything was so much better. And, you know, she was a little, well, I don't know. It's not written that way. Well, you know what? The evaluator's probably going to be making notes anyway, so they won't even see that <laughs> you've done it. But it, it was a feeling of cheating almost. But man, it, it produced the sound we needed. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I hope that that judges can start to also be open minded about that. And really, you know, we should be if we're judges, we should be judging the music and not Mm. how someone decided to solve that.
0: Ooh. Mm. Well, that's a whole nother topic.
2: (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, we better move on because
0: my final question, which I think is a really important one, especially because the listeners of Key Ideas, my guess, would be most likely teaching beginners. I mean, most piano teachers, we ha- we have to teach beginners. We don't have the privilege of teaching well-seasoned pianists just because that's just our business. And so how can we start our students in the right direction? what what are some tips what are some what's the advice that we can give our students
2: great yes this is a question that i definitely get a lot right because mm-hmm. we have lots of different students and you can't treat them all as career pianists right? yeah, exactly. If they're a career pianist you know then i'm going to definitely encourage them to go all the way with taubin training mm-hmm. but um, beginners and intermediate students what i feel is sort of a good way to go about it is i try to think about training them to be in tune with their body, so to pay attention to how things feel, uh, I also want them to learn how to think critically. So I try to prime them to ask questions and, and think critically. So I want to go through that in a little bit more uh, detail. Mm-hmm. So you know, from the very very get go with a student, I want to include them in solutions. And you talked about that just a moment ago that you did that with a fingering with a student. You know, the student we have more, more obviously to teach than just technique. We're teaching uh, theory and how the music works and musicality and technique. And, and I also think it's very important to teach the person to learn in a healthy way, you know, and learn, learn to think and, and be involved. So, so I involve them in that process and I ask them to be detectives with me. Mm. And I always noticed that that sort of life Up the kid, you know, someone who will just sit there sort of quietly and do as they're told. But when we ask them questions, they usually get more engaged. Uh, I, of course, try to lead them in the right direction, you know, if I see them twisting up to the black key with their thumb, I try to ask, what's another way that we could get there? I'm encouraging them to get to the in and out, but again, having them be a part of that process. And then I ask them to tell me, you know, does this feel better? Does this feel worse? Is it easier? Uh, something that Taubman would say also, which I, I think is funny and true, is she felt that students should come to their lesson and complain. Oh. <laughs> so I thought that was a funny <laughs> way to put it. Complain? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but she meant they should come in and with their music and complain and say, you know, in measure 12, I just can't get that note right for some reason. Mm. Right that they should feel comfortable telling the teacher where their problems are mm-hmm. as opposed to coming in with you know fear and then trying to perform for their teacher and not make any mistakes uh you know that's a different type of scene so if they're coming in and i ask them hey what part of this was harder you know i'm there to help you right so So yeah, it's lots of little ways of involving them in this detective work of of thinking of problem solving of being okay to make mistakes, Mm -hmm. ask for help. Uh, So those kinds of things, um, I think, are good to set them off in the right direction, you know, and then if they get more serious, we get we get more serious. Mm -hmm. I also think there's some basic tools that are very easy to apply, you know, there's no reason why we can't get them sitting at the right height, for instance. So you know, you can get their elbow level with the white keys, I have these little mats I have people sit on and you can send them home, you know, with their with the student to make sure that they sit like that at home. You can make sure they're sitting correctly on the bench that they have something underneath their feet. You know, a lot of times kids fing- feet are dangling mm-hmm. <laughs> off the bench. And so then they have to sit very far back on the bench, which is bad for their posture. And then their back doesn't feel good. And they know they're supposed to sit straight, but they can't sit straight because they're sitting far back on the bench. You know, So these kinds of things are real easy for us to address, You know, sit forward on the bench, put something underneath their feet. Get the right level of pads, you know. Mm. I'm Um, a convert of those pads, the
0: little foam pads. I'll put a link in the show notes because, yeah, they're easy. They're light. You can arrange them to the height that you need. Exactly. I've had students bring them home. I have some that are more... Conscientious about it than others, so yes. I know I have to keep working on that.
2: It is a great <laughs> that time. is hard. That's mm-hmm. hard to get them to do it at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have their parent take a picture of them at home, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that the next time they're going to no. <laughs> they're going to do it. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Um, yeah. And every lesson I would try to, you know, do at least a small amount of something that has to do with technique. It either can be, you know, pure technique or it can be just, yeah, let's, let's move in to get that thumb on the black key. You know, just kind of sprinkling in these ideas so that so that they're ready to do more if they decide to do more. I think the
0: word why, or the question why, is helpful for students. Once they know a reason why you're suggesting something, they're, you're more likely to sell them on it, don't you think?
2: Absolutely, yeah. And you know, with kids, of course, kids don't bother talking about injury. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they don't care. And they're probably not gonna get injured for a long time anymore anyway, right? Mm-hmm but they are motivated by, I hit the right note more often, right? Yeah. They are motivated by playing fast, fast. right? Fast. Oh my goodness. Yes. Play fast! I use right? that all the time. Or,
0: hey, if you want to play fast, you got to do yeah. this.
2: Right. Exactly. So they're motivated by that, um, memory or, you know, just the ease of getting around, but definitely, um, just fix, fixing something. You now, I, I wanna share a quick story about you know, my, my youth in terms of, I, I had wonderful teachers, they taught me wonderful things, but one not so wonderful thing <laughs> was, you know if I had a problematic passage, my teacher would circle it and write some number like 50 or 150, <laughs> and it meant that I was supposed to repeat that thing 150 times a day, you know? And if you get lucky, your body Figures it out, right? But there were plenty of times where I was a diligent student and I practiced that passage 150 times, you know, every day, and it still wasn't working. And I would get so frustrated that I actually would hit the keys. It's hard to to admit. I hit my keys. And I broke hammers so often that I knew how to replace them. I mean, oh <laughs> so that that was not working well. No, it's like you're hitting your you know, fingers against a brick wall. That's awful, right? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. having tools and knowing that the teacher is there to help and and not just struggle over and over again, like this is the thing, we're in it together. Let, let's figure out a solution. Um, you know, it's so much more rewarding and, and the practice. This doesn't feel like yeah, running your head into a wall. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. well, the
0: mindless repetition comes to mind. You know, and I I'm guilty of that. And at first, I just want my students to repeat something. You know, <laughs> once is not enough. So let's do it more than that. And then as I train them, okay, well, okay, how did that third time go? And being more aware. Mm-hmm. Of their mistakes but yes being it's all about body awareness and i think our students right now are in their present selves and they could care less about their future selves but yeah. as teachers we can start grooming them to be thinking yeah. about their future selves exactly so oh man
2: Brenna. you're right about repeating i should say yeah. that okay yeah for some degree of repeating yeah it- Good, but it has to be repeating of something that is correct and it has to be finite, right? Because there's diminishing returns after about five to 10 times of doing something. But yeah, once is definitely not enough.
0: Diminishing returns. Ooh, I like that. Yes.
2: So you know some science behind that, it sounds like. Yes, yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Well, we could go on and on. Brenna, I think it's been fabulous having you here and it it brings to mind... I appreciate your upbringing because you talked about this at the workshop and at the dinner table, you would maybe have a topic or something, but then you had to bring support behind (laughs) whatever you were going to talk about. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. Yes, my my father was a nuclear physicist, and proof and evidence was, was a family value. So yeah, if you made an assertion and you didn't have the evidence to back it up, yeah, you were laughed out of the room. It was a bizarre upbringing.
0: So this Taubman approach really gave you the evidence because you reprogrammed How you play the piano and uh, I was watching you play Rachmaninoff and you do make it look effortless even though I know it's not um man it's it's amazing so it thank you so much for sharing your wit and your wisdom and your brilliance
2: and expertise well thank you Layla it was very much fun good
0: well I'll have to have you come back and we can talk more sometime
2: sounds good thanks again
0: sure Wow, there is so much to learn from Brenna. I forgot to ask Brenna to close with a favorite quote. So here's a summation of one of Brenna's tips. The score is a blueprint for sound. Composers give us instructions and players must find the most direct path to making the music sound as the composer intended. Before I sign off, here's a reminder to head to the show notes so you can learn more about Brenna. And while there, make sure to sign up to get emails from Brenna and her team about the Effortless Artistry Music Annual Colorado Tubman Approach Workshop. I went last year and can't wait to attend next year. It was so cool to see teacher friends fly in from out of state for the event. Out of state attendance makes it clear that even if you aren't in Colorado, the workshop is worth the trip. Also, look for the links to the foam pads to use with students that we mention, and make sure to download your free copy of Wendy Stevens' piece, The Bold Escape. I'm Leela Viss, and see you in the trenches with the best intentions to develop students who enjoy playing the piano pain-free and using an effortless technique.